Take your Bible, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 17 all the way through verse 21. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 17. The title of the message this morning is The Precious Blood of Christ. When I was a boy, as a young boy, I remember visiting some friends. I had a friend invited me over to their house and it was his grandmother's house and we were eating dinner with them, and my my friend's grandmother fixed a meal for us. I was young. I was very young at the time. It was probably one of my first times kind of spending the night at someone else's house, and, and it was a very, very, very formal kind of a setting in that there was a real meal. It wasn't just hamburgers and hot dogs. It was we sat down for this meal around this table with all of us there, and it was a, a setting I was completely unprepared for. As we sat there, and I set the food in front of me, and we ate, and we prayed uh, together and blessed the meal, I immediately picked up my fork and began enjoying the luscious food before me. It was so amazing. And as soon as I had taken about two and a half bites, across the table, on the other side of the table, came the voice of my friend's father. And he called out my name. Now, if you've ever been in a situation where you've been reprimanded by someone who you're not expecting to be reprimanded from, it's a very unnerving situation. I'm used to my dad and my mom reprimanding me. I mean, in gentleness, you know. But this was my friend's dad, and he said, Marshall. It was much louder than that. He said, Marshall. And I I immediately stopped. He said, we must wait for the hostess to sit and pick up her fork before you start eating. And I was completely baffled because I was embarrassed. I had never, you know, I had not been in a situation in our house, in our house, and our our host was my mom, and, and she always would say, go ahead, go ahead, start eating. I never realized the significance of that, that you were supposed to wait. And as a young boy, I hadn't been taught that yet. I went home and told my mom this story, and she covered her eyes, and she said, I failed, I failed. <laughs> and um, I remember this this confrontation still today as an embarrassing reminder that we need to be sometimes reminded of what our conduct should be. And when it comes to holy living, as we talked about last week, I, I might be standing in for my friend's dad who, who shouted that corrective across the table a little bit this morning and that some of the things I'm, I'm going to address today, I'm going to confront you about today, about what the word says, uh, it, it might be things you, you should have known. It might be things you should have already had as part of your life. And in a moment, in that moment, I had never realized that what I was doing was not showing reverence was not showing uh, that kindness towards the family there. It was politeness, but reverence, really. And here is the centerpiece of this text, of the scripture we have today before us, one of the most beautiful passages so far in this book. It really focuses on this corrective here, that, that we might be doing things that do not show reverence to God. That we might be living our lives completely oblivious of what God has called us to do. And so today, we're going to look into this and we're going to see what it means, what it looks like, flesh and bones, what it looks like to live in this life, to move forward in holy living. And even if you've never thought about it before, even if you didn't know about it, even if you were unaware, God expects this of us. It's an expectation that's there, whether or not we realize it. And so this morning, let us humble our hearts before God. And come before him in prayer, and then we will ask ourselves a simple question. What does holy living look like? Father, we ask you today, you'd help us as we look at this passage, that we would be sensitive to your truth and we would be aware 
that you have demands on us whether or not we realize it. You have expectations of us whether or not we have done them before. Lord, you call on us to obey your word, to be in line with your truth. And so today, Lord, may we, past, present, and future, look into our hearts, look into the truth of the word of God, and evaluate ourselves and say, Lord, help me to follow you. Help me to obey as you have called me to obey. In Jesus' name, amen. So what does holy living look like? The passage we have here this morning gives us really the essential expression of the Christian faith. If you had to boil it down, this is what it looks like to live as a Christian in a holy living. In con- so in context, look back at verses 15 and 16 and we'll see that he says, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct in all your actions in your activity why because it is written be holy for i am holy that is leading us into verse 17 and in verse 17 he tells us how we are to conduct ourselves what does this holy conduct look like he's commanded us to be holy now let's put some flesh and bones on it let's see what this looks like he says you need to do this by conducting yourself First, in your attitude with reverence towards God. This is our attitude and how we are to live out. Read with me in verse 17. It's on your uh, back of your bulletin if you don't have a Bible. It was part of our scripture reading this morning. Verse 17 says, If you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout your time of stay here in fear. This is a a complex sentence, and if you look for the main, what I call verbal idea, that is the main command in this passage, you have to kind of go towards the middle part where he says, conduct yourselves in fear. Conduct yourselves with reverence, is what that means. This is the clear command, that we are to conduct yourself with reverence towards God. And in light of this command that you must be reverent to God, he gives reasons. The first of these reasons is because we are the ones who should be worshiping God. He begins this by saying, if you call on the Father. He's saying, since you call on the Father. This is a a construction in Greek that expresses no doubt whatsoever. He's not saying that you might call on the Father, you might not call on the Father. He's saying, since you are the ones who call on the Father... It's a conditional that expresses no doubt. And Jesus actually taught this in the Lord's Prayer when he says in Matthew chapter 6 that we are to say, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. The idea of calling on God as our Father. If you just trace back in your Bible, look at several passages so far, or several verses so far in this book that have given this context of God as our Father, we are his children. Look back with me at verse 14. He calls us to be obedient children, not conforming ourselves to our former lust. You go back to verse three. He says, we are to be, we are blessed to be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again. God has born us again. We are born again of him. And then he calls him in verse two, we are elect according to the foreknowledge of God, the father, the, the, the reference of God, the father is important here. And he says, you call on him. And to call on him means we are ones who worship him. Since you are the ones who call on the Father, since you call on God the Father, you need to conduct yourself 
in reverence. Conduct yourself in fear. The word fear is the whole biblical religious attitude towards God. The Old Testament concept of the fear of the Lord. It's pervasive throughout the Old Testament as we read the Bible, always talking about the fear of the Lord as the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord. We are to fear God. And, and, and our religious, I'm sorry, in our English language, to, to reference this complex word, I've chosen the word reverence because I think this really captures the sense of what he's saying here. You know, there is a place for us to be goofy, silly, ridiculous, and to make light of situations. Uh, my kids um, know that I am a goofy, silly person very often at home. I make, I, I, I can hardly keep a straight face, and you may not believe that, but it's true. You hang around uh, me at my house, and we'll be, we'll be goofing off and having a lot of fun. However, what the scripture tells us is that when it comes to talking about the Lord, when it comes to worshiping the Lord, we conduct ourselves with reverence. That's why if you look at the Lord's prayer, he says, our father who art in heaven, what's the next phrase? Hallowed be your name. Holy be your name. Simply put, God is holy. He calls us to be holy. And we're to be holy by treating him as holy. When we are flippant with God, when we are casual about our relationship with God, when we don't care, when we are sarcastic about our walk with God, we, we are showing that we are not conducting ourselves with reverence towards God. Why should we do this? Because we worship him. And then also because a more serious note here, because we will be judged by God. He says he, without partiality, judges according to each one's work. God is the only perfectly righteous judge, and he's going to hold you accountable for the decisions that you make. God holds us accountable for the choices that we make, for the words that we speak, and every man, every woman will be held accountable before God. That should scare you just a little bit. That should cause you to pause for a moment. It's often in these times that the scripture gives us great encouragement to watch what we say. Jesus says every idle word will be judged. Our relationship, notice, with him as a father does not mean that we escape scrutiny. He is our father. So you say, well, I've got my dad, so to speak, in on this. So, you know, he'll look with me in favor. That's what some people might come to the conclusion. If we're called as children of God who have an inheritance in heaven, and if God the father is our father, then, you know, it's kind of not something you have to worry about. But he's calling on us just because he is your father does not mean that you get to escape any kind of a critical eye. God is still going to deal without partiality. He is going to deal with you as you are in truth. In fact, the scripture tells us that this is part of God's character. For the Lord your God is a God of gods, the Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome. What's one of his defining characteristics? Who shows no partiality, nor takes a bribe. God does not look at us and say, I like those people, I like those people, I don't like those people. God shows no partiality with how he deals with us. I'll let them get away with sin, I'll not let them get away with sin. God deals evenly and without showing partiality. He's an impartial judge. And so we can't escape his judging eye. We will be judged by God. We worship God. And the third part of this truth is that not only are these two true, but we do not belong here. This is 
something truly fascinating. He said that we are conduct ourselves with reverence towards God because you belong there with him and not here. This place is not your home. Do you see that, that phrase in your scripture that says throughout your time of stay here? Conduct yourselves throughout your time of stay here. That is a technical word that means to sojourn or to exile. In fact, this has been referenced a couple times already in, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6. He says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. There is a, a shortened time that we're here on this earth and we get to experience the trials we're facing. But when he says the sojourn, your time of stay, he's referencing back to verse 1. When he calls us as sojourners and pilgrims. So when he's saying this, he's saying your stay here is your sojourning. You're wandering. So while we're wandering around this world, without roots, without a home, you are to conduct yourselves as God calls you to conduct yourselves. He says, beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, chapter 2 Verse 11, he calls them sojourners and pilgrims. Back to 1, verse 1, pilgrims of the dispersion. Over and over again, God calls us and says, you don't belong here. I am kind of a homebody when it comes to belonging. I love to be settled. I've been in Rock Hill for a long time. I love to have roots. Before we moved to Rock Hill, my family lived in Anderson for like hundreds of years. No joke. And because our family is just kind of minded that way, we enjoy having deep roots. We enjoy having that, being able to see people who I haven't seen in 20 years and be like, oh, I know who they are. And we strike up a conversation and we know people from knowing people and that's fun. But there's a danger to having roots in that you begin to get comfortable. You begin to settle in. You say, this is my home. If you live in a, just imagine, I live in a, you know, I live in a house and I buy things for my house that are heavy and that don't, they aren't easy to move and I'm not planning to move them anytime soon. And you know, if you, if you were to live in a tent, you would never buy the number of books that I have in my house. You would never buy the bookshelves that I put on my wall because you would have to take them down and carry them to your next spot where you put up your tent. Friend, we have, in many respects, fallen into this trap as believers. We, we buy into that this world is our own, so let's go ahead and start decorating. Let's spend all of our time making this world fitting for us rather than recognizing we don't belong here. This is a journey. This is our sojourning. This is our exile. This is our exodus. This is not where we really belong. And that's what he's saying here. You are living, remember, as a sojourner. Do everything you do with reverence towards God because we worship him. And that's what worshiping God looks like, to be reverent. Because we're judged by God, we recognize his authority to judge us. And we don't belong here. Our lives here on earth are as sojourners, as wanderers, as travelers, as pilgrims of the dispersion. And everything we do has one goal, and that is we should do everything to the glory of God. This verse is always bears repeating. Therefore, whatever you, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Remember this. Secondly, I want you to see that as we move forward in this text, we see the second 
part of our conduct that we must remember that you are redeemed by God. Not only are we to conduct ourselves with reference towards God, reverence towards God, we are to be remembering that we are redeemed by God. There's a little grammatical detail I want to point out before we move on, that the word knowing we're getting ready to read in a minute in verse 18 it's called a participle, and what it does is it functions as as the foundation for the reason you are conducting yourself in verse 17. Why do we have to live this conduct according to God? Well, he gives us this foundation in verse 18. Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by the tradition of your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He says, knowing or remembering. We live with this in the forefront of our minds. The key word here is redeemed. And the word redeemed means to, to, to pay a ransom or to set free. It's described often about a slave being redeemed from his slavery. Someone will buy him out. In fact, often a slave could put down his own money to buy himself out of this slavery. There was what's called an atonement price that was paid by every Israelite when they were born, uh, by the parents of Israelites when they were born. It's also described, this word redemption is described when God redeems his children of Israel out of the bondage of exile. And, and it's, it's normally the, the, the God redeems the people and God buys people out of slavery. That's the picture of Exodus. And what are we redeemed from? He says, we are redeemed first. What are we redeemed? We are redeemed, he says here, from a life of sin. In verse 18, he were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by the tradition of your fathers. When someone was redeemed, it was normally done with money. They were bought back. But Peter downplays the value of these things that we up, we think about, like, like gold and silver. They are corruptible. They decay. They break down, he says, they are perishable because they are subject to the fall and to creation. They are by nature not of God. By nature, they are going to fall and not last. He says, these are corruptible things. He says, you are redeemed from your aimless conduct. Aimless just means pointless. Uh, the way I like to describe this word is if you have a balloon, which there were some kids blowing up balloons last week at church, and they were popping and scaring all of us. Because when a noise like that happens and you're not expecting it, it makes you jump. But imagine the balloon does not pop. Imagine you blow up a balloon and you just hold it and then you let it go. Where does that balloon go? Wherever it wants to go, right? It's like you're, some of y'all are like, man, that's the story of my life. It's just, you know, everywhere, bouncing around. And see, it has no rudder on it. It has no direction on it. The air blows out the back and the balloon just goes wherever it wants. That is the picture of aimlessness, directionlessness. And he says, that's what you were doing. You were pointless. And where did this tradition come from? The aimless, or where did this pointlessness come from? Your aimless conduct received by tradition. The tradition of things passed down from parent to child are in fact aimless. This is talking about the, the religious structure that was in place. False righteousness. The tradition of your fathers, these man-made ideas in contrast to God-given truths. They don't come from God. These traditions enslave us. 
Some of you come from that kind of tradition where your parents were in a church that taught you works righteousness. They taught you do good things and God will be happy, do bad things and God will be sad. If you go to heaven uh, and stand before God, hopefully your good works outweigh your bad. That's what you've been taught. That is a false tradition of man that is not found in our word. It is not found in God's word at all because these traditions enslave you. They don't set you free. And here he says that these traditions need to be reformed, need to be redeemed from, we need to be, re- actually not reformed, need to be rejected completely. We need to be bought out of these man-made structures and traditions toward a God-focused, God-given truth. We have been redeemed from our aimless conduct out of a life of sin and toward a life of holiness. How are we redeemed? We are redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. Verse 19, some of the sweetest words In the entire book, he says, but we are redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb, without blemish, without spot. Rather than being redeemed with corruptible things, things that fall away, things that can be spent and lost, where thieves break in and steal, moth and rust corrupt. People think of gold and silver as precious, as valuable, as worth pursuing, but we are not redeemed with these corruptible things the rich of this world cannot buy their way into heaven the poor of this world are not excluded from heaven because they do not have wealth we are redeemed with the incorruptible with the perfect with the beautiful precious blood of christ only it says here that the precious blood of christ christ's blood was precious We speak of the blood of Christ because of his bloody death on the cross. His blood had to be shed. His blood had to be spilt. Christ was perfectly righteous and undeserving of this death. Yet he willingly went as a substitute for you and for me. He didn't deserve it. It was our sin that had to be paid for, not his. Coming up on Easter, I can't think of a better timing for this message as we see the perfect spotless Lamb of God. Next week, we'll see the presentation of the Lamb of God and Jesus Christ as that perfect, spotless, holy Lamb of God shed His blood. He died so you don't have to experience the full weight of death. What is death? Death is separation from God. And all of us will have a physical death of our bodies unless the Lord comes back before that. But none of us will experience the full weight. If you've trusted Christ as your Savior, you will not experience the full weight of death that hits you when you're completely separated from God in the pit of hell. Because that price has been paid. That debt is paid for. Christ's precious blood is the only blood that could fully pay for our debt. The word precious means valuable. It means worth a great Price. Jesus asked this question in Matthew chapter 16. He says, What profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? Friends, if all the riches of the world, all the gold and silver, dollars and yen, every kind of money you can imagine were be compiled and compared with the soul of a man, it wouldn't pale in comparison. Yet Jesus' precious blood was so valuable that he died to save anyone who calls on his name. Friend, Jesus loves you. 
and his blood paid for your sin. If you had been the only person on this earth, Jesus would have died for you. And his blood covers everyone's sin. Riches will pass. Eternity is forever. All the riches of this world cannot be compared with the precious blood of Jesus. And Jesus' death on the cross redeemed. It purchased souls from sin and and destruction. There's only one Jesus. There's only one cross that has any meaning. There was only one Savior who died on that cross for your sin and paid the debt so you do not have to, that you cannot pay so you would not be completely hopeless. hopeless. Without Him, you would have no salvation. Christ's blood was precious and Christ's blood was perfect. Notice how He says, as of like a lamb without blemish and without spot. I read this morning as I began the service from Exodus chapter 12, <clears throat> which is describing the Passover ritual that Moses has prescribed for the people of Israel. Now, I don't know if you caught it, but in there it talked about the fact they were to bring a lamb, and the lamb they were to have was a male, the first year, without spot or blemish. They were not to offer just anything to God. This has a lot of implications for us. We don't just come and give God our leftovers. We give God the best. Give God the first fruits. We bring Him what what is the best we have, and we present it to him. But here there was more than just a picture of Moses saying, you bring the best, don't bring something that's injured or lame. Like, God doesn't want your lame lamb that has spots all over it that, that's going to die in a week anyway. Let's go ahead and sacrifice this to God. That's not much of a sacrifice. It's a sacrifice when you take that which is valuable, when you take that which is your best, and you give it to God. And that is a lot of what was being taught in the Old Testament. But there was more than that. It was that Jesus Christ would be that spotless, perfect lamb of God who came on our behalf and died on our behalf. And he had no spot. He had no, no blemishes. And I'm not talking here about a, a pimple or a freckle. I'm talking about his perfect, his perfect life lived. You have not lived a perfect life. I know that because the Bible says there's none righteous. No, not one. I have not lived a perfect life either. I've sinned plenty. And, and since we have sinned plenty, we need someone who has not sinned at all. And that's what Christ did for us. He is the perfect lamb. The message is God does not accept anything from the best. We cannot offer God our leftovers. And this perfect blood, Christ's blood, was shed on your behalf. Can you think of anything better than that? He says you are bought with a price. And you must receive this gift. This gift is not yours unless you receive it. Christ died for all, but not all will be saved. Because not everyone receives the gift of salvation that has been given so freely to us. Remember, you must conduct yourself with reverence to God. That's what it looks like to live out this faith. Remember, you must be, or you are redeemed by God. And this leads us to putting our faith and hope in God. As we finish out this passage, verse 20 and 21, he says, we indeed were for, he was indeed foreordained. Before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. If you skip to the end of these two verses, you'll find the conclusion. He says, so your faith and your hope are in God. And when you see so that in your text, in your Bible, it's often talking about a result. And if our desired result is that our faith and our hope rests in God. Why can we do this? Well, we can believe and hope in God because, number one, God's plans prove to be perfect. 
In verse 20, he says, He, Christ, indeed was foreknown. He was foreordained. Even before the foundations of the world. It's a long time ago. Before God created the world, He was the one who was foreordained. But He was manifest in these last times for you. And is he saying that Christ was foreknown? It was always part of the plan. God's plans are perfect even before the foundation of the world. Revelation 13.8 describes Jesus Christ as a lamb slain from the foundation of the world. The foundation of the world describing even the creation of of time and the creation of the world and creation of all that exists today. God had a plan which was perfect, which was arranged in eternity past, but was only made manifest or revealed at this present time. And God's plans are always proving to be perfect. It's always been a part of His plan and it's always revealed at the last time. This has been a consistent theme throughout the book of First Peter. In First Peter chapter 1, verse 5, he says, We are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. God is waiting to reveal this salvation at the perfect time. The fact that God had this all foreordained and Christ came at the perfect time should give us comfort that we know God's going to give us this solution to our present trouble at the perfect time. Time. And then in verses 10 and 11, he says again of the salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you searching what or what manner of time the spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. All of God's plans have proven to be perfect, to be perfectly right timing. His timing is always right. We can place our faith and hope to God because God's plans proved to be perfect And God's power proves to be unmatched. He says, who who through him, it's Christ, believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so your faith and hope are in God. How do we come to God the Father? We come to him through Christ. Who through him believe in God. Unless you come to God through Christ, you are not coming to the God of the Bible. We come to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And how is God's power demonstrated? How is this power proven to be unmatched? He does two amazing things. First, he overcomes death itself. Who raised him from the dead. There is hope beyond death. And it's in Christ. And the second thing he says is he gave him glory. He glorified him. Both these things are just beyond our understanding. They they prove God's power is beyond parallel. Now, the main command of this passage, as I mentioned, is all the way back in verse 17. Look with me if you go back to verse 17. He says, if you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, what does he say here? Conduct yourselves throughout your time of stay here with reverence or in fear. Can I ask you two pointed questions? Number one, are you acting like a sojourner? Are you acting like someone who's only here for a little bit of time? Are you aware that you're only here for a while or are you putting down roots into the world's system? Number two, 
Do the decisions that you make reflect a reverent attitude toward God? How seriously do you take the things of God? Last week, I encouraged you to commit to living a holy life, a life that is separated from God. Be holy for I am holy. He's separate, not like perfect. That's not what holy means. Holy means separate or unique. And this week, we've seen how this works in real life. We are to conduct ourselves with reverence to God. That is the present tense. That is how we live today. And if you keep looking, he says we are to remember that we're redeemed in Christ. If, if conducting ourselves in the present tense, that's present, that's what is rede- remembering our redemption in Christ is in the past. And then the last thing he says is we are to place our faith and hope in God, and that's the future. So, so whether it's in the present, conducting ourselves now with reverence towards God, or remembering the past redemption we have in Christ, or looking in faith and hope towards God in the future, whatever the context we are, it's all centered on living a holy life and our holy conduct fully for Him. And that's because, it's only possible because of what Christ did on the cross. On the cruel, cruel cross. It's the blood of Jesus that calls us away from the world. Away from our indulging in sin, indulging in self-righteous traditions and clings to the only answer that we have, which is the blood of Christ. His blood calls us to that. And what does it look like to do that? It calls us to live in faith. Faith is trusting. Faith is looking to an object. So my question for you is, what is your object of your faith today? If you are going to be living a holy life, what does it look like? Where is your object? Where is you? Where are you trusting? Is it Jesus? Or are you coming out of self-righteousness? Traditions of your fathers. The precious blood of Christ gives us a place where we can stand. It gives us a place where we can go. It gives us our hope. And so I ask you today, have you been living in holy conduct with reverence towards God as you should? Is your faith where it ought to be in the past? And your hope and your confidence in the future? Do you trust in the Lord to follow through on what he's promised to give us? Would you bow with me in prayer as we close?